This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Alice Sherwood, who's visiting Senior Research Fellow at King's College London's Policy Unit. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about the stories we might have missed. We learned that municipal authorities in St Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. And a bit later on today's show, some very cheering cultural news as Hay Festival makes a big announcement. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Peru has imposed a state of emergency to tackle violent protests, which erupted after the ousting of leftist President Pedro Castillo, who was arrested last week after trying to dissolve the country's congress. Authorities in Peru have held high-level talks to try and resolve the deepening political crisis. Mexico's government has said it is consulting with Peruvian authorities about an asylum request Castillo has made to Mexico. China's abrupt lifting of stringent COVID-19 restrictions could result in an explosion of cases and over a million deaths through 2023. That's according to new projections from the US-based Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. According to the group's figures, cases in China would peak around April the 1st, when deaths would reach 322,000. The director of the institute said about a third of China's population will have been infected by then. And Elon Musk reinstated the Twitter accounts of several journalists that were suspended for a day over a controversy on publishing public data about the billionaire's plane. The reinstatements came after the unprecedented suspensions evoked criticism from government officials, advocacy groups and journalism organisations from several parts of the globe, with some saying the microblogging platform was jeopardising press freedom. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's talk about press freedom or uh, press uh, suppression of freedom, indeed, uh, with my guest, who is Alice Sherwood. Uh, she is from King's College London, and it's an absolute delight to have you. We've had you here before talking about your book. Remind us. Um, well, the book is called Authenticity, uh, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture. Uh, there's still a lot of inauthenticity around these days, I find. I don't know about you. Absolutely. And I mean, I think this is something that Elon Musk is uh, grappling with is is like, well, he wants to regulate freedom of speech, but does he know what that is? Um, I don't think if somebody suspends uh, a whole series of journalists for actually posting publicly available information, in this case about Elon Jet is called Elon Musk's private jet, which is publicly available as are all um, uh, plane routes. Mm -hmm. I think he quite understands freedom of speech. And mm. he did actually use the fact a long time ago that um, Elon Jet was allowed on Twitter as proof that he understood free speech, and now he's banning them all. It, uh, although the journalists have now come back. <laughs> I mean, but it, but it just does seem... I mean, how dangerous is this, this, this one man who is in charge of this site, which influences so many? I think he's... I, 
I personally think he's incredibly dangerous. I, I personally think he's a mini Trump. Um, and uh, I'm, I have to say that I'm not sorry that people are leaving Twitter in, in droves to go to Masterton mm. and uh, whatever new platform clever people come up with. Absolutely. Well, look, of course, that's been a huge story in the news this week. The other huge story, and I don't uh, intend to go much into it, but it does uh, uh, brush up on this uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression story, is Harry and Meghan. Uh, who have just had such a go at at the press, really. Uh, and what it seems to come down to is a row between the offices of the Sussexes and the whatever else they're called. What are they called? The, the Cambridges. The Cambridges. Yeah, several counties doing battle with each other. Yeah, but it seems to be briefing by their courtiers or their PR people at any rate, and that they're all trying to blame or get get rid of bad news on, onto the other. I I think it's... Absolutely insane. Uh, there were, I think, eight pages in the Times yesterday um, on Harry and Meghan. And it's not as though there weren't a lot of other pages on the other days of the week. So I find it completely baffling. I'm afraid I haven't. I have Netflix. I haven't watched it. And to just the spectacle of two young people, two very beautiful, wealthy, talented young people, busily invading their own privacy and then blaming the media for not allowing them any privacy. It's just a sort of logical leap I can't make. It's quite extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Uh, let's let's move swiftly on because I don't think we need to give them any more attention. Uh, let's go to the FT because this is all about uh, SBF, as he's called, Sam Bankman-Fried. Tell us what's going on with the SBF FTX story. Um, Sam Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF to his friends, uh, uh, an ever-decreasing number, I have to say, um, was held to be the future of, of cryptocurrencies. Um, and he was going to take cryptocurrency into Wall Street and he was going to make us all crypto investors. And he looked just like a crypto bro, as they're, near, as they're known, should look. So he wore shorts and a T-shirt and he played video games while talking to investors. And guess what? It's all a fraud. Uh, and he uh, now has, I think, criminal and civil cases from three separate departments in the US coming after him. It looks as though uh, once they extradite him from the Bahamas, uh, he's currently in jail in the Bahamas pending pending bail. Um, they will extradite him back to the US uh, and he will be charged and he could face up to 100 years in prison. I'm sure he won't get 100 years in prison, but he could face quite a lot. Did he know it was a fraud? He must have done. He absolutely must have done. Firstly, because he's a clever boy. Um, all those MIT connections and those Stanford parents, um, he must have known that he was pilfering funds, depositors' funds, or rather customers' funds, uh, from one business to pay off another business. Uh, so, uh, yes, he must have known, he must have felt invincible. And people have lost a lot of money. And a lot of people have lost a lot of money. So, you, you know, you may say, well, the institutions can take it on the chin, they've got insurance, uh, but there are millions of private investors. So... I don't feel too sorry for him, I'm afraid. Does that sound very, very judgmental? Sorry, Sam, you had a good ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is just that common or garden fraud again. Um, 
dressed up with crypto bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the New York Times because there is a really interesting piece here about the new chatbot, chat GPT. Uh, I've seen so many stories about this, haven't done a deep dive into it yet. Uh, Sounds fascinating, but also a bit scary. I love, I I absolutely love a GPT, uh, which is uh, an AI programme. There have been a whole series of them. Uh, and strangely enough, uh, they're all made by OpenAI, uh, which is uh, partly founded and owned by Elon Musk. He gets everywhere. Uh, but this one is a very, very superior human-like AI a bot that can talk to you and really sound very human. Um, and it's just learnt, like all bots do, from basically everything we put on the internet. But in just a few years, they've become immeasurably better, more nuanced, more usable. And I'm thinking back to, I think it was 2017, when Microsoft released their first ever chatbot, which was an exercise in in conversation with a robot that learned as they chatted to people on the internet. And they had to withdraw the chatbot within 24 hours because she, it was a she, had become an absolute foul ranting, racist, misogynist. Mm. This one, and this is why I really like the piece in in, in the New York Times, is much improved, much less judgmental, very nuanced, almost humble, says, owns up when it doesn't know things, not all the time, but some of the time, and apparently has a great sense of humour. So the reason that the sort of prototype, if you like, was so racist and misogynist is that, as you say, they learn from the internet. They pick up what it is and how it is that we're all talking about things. And that absolutely reflected back what society has become. Has society changed or have they found a way to combat that? They found a way to combat... um what they call hallucinations, which is supposedly a technical term, but it is uh, AI's tendency to make things up when it doesn't know the answer. Um, And alignment, which is just to keep it going on the same track and to try and remember what it said. And what they do is they've just done a lot more interaction with, with human beings who aren't ranting people on the web, which is why this is so popular. A million people have downloaded it and are chatting to it. And it's learning from those chats. And presumably not all those chats are are misogynist, racist rants. So it's learning. How interesting. Mm. Uh, let's let's uh, cross over to our, to our contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about football. <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> and also culture. So first, though, here's our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his weekly roundup of the stories we might have missed. We learned this week that it is maybe actually possible to feel an amount of sympathy for Russia's soldiers deployed in Ukraine. Over and above, obviously, the fact that they're cold, badly supplied, poorly equipped, ineptly led, and pawns in a crime as vast as it is futile. We learned that, who knows, perhaps as a consequence of all of the preceding, it had been noted that morale in the trenches was ebbing somewhat, and we learned that someone at Russia's Defence Ministry had had an idea for fixing this. 
We learned that, rather regrettably, the idea was not calling the whole thing off, getting everybody home for Christmas, enacting a swift and efficient coup d'etat and then overseeing a seamless transition to functional democracy and letting somebody sane have a lash at running the joint. But was, broadly, this. Yes. We learned that the Ministry had decided that what would really cheer up the troops at the front was not winter clothing, flak jackets, rations, ammunition, competent commanders and an honourable mission, but balalaikas, harmonicas and accordions. We learned that the Ministry, and we checked the date, it wasn't Orthodox Fool's Day or anything, believe that such instruments will, and we quote, support morale and unity, inspire heroic deeds, and moral and psychological relief among Russia's invading army. We learned that, accordingly, municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. <laughs> we learned that, basically, Russia's Ministry of Defence is now the new stooge in the old joke about the accordionist who leaves his accordion in his car when he goes to the shops and returns to find the window has been smashed and there are ten accordions. Here all week. Try the stroganoff. That'll do. Mallet. They can always burn the accordions, and indeed should. Elsewhere on the Eastern Front, we learned that Poland, if we can extrapolate sweeping conclusions from a single somewhat silly news story, and why not, it's our monologue, appears keen to position itself as a rival to Florida, the and finally state, as a supplier of the kind of inexplicable idiocy which is of greatly welcomed assistance in padding out whimsical news reviews such as this. So cheers, Poland. We learned that in Poland's northwest, near a village we are not going to amuse you all by attempting to pronounce the tyres of 21 vehicles in a meat warehouse parking lot had been slashed by a miscreant dressed as a Christmas tree. Let's hear it for the detailed evocation of the sound of someone dressed as a Christmas tree slashing tyres there. We have not learned as yet of either the identity or the motives of the branch-bedecked ne'er-do-well. Yes, yes, police are stumped. Hey! More happily, we learn that there is emu news. Retrieve, if you will, from the vault. Emu Strut by 1980s Australian bluegrass sensations The Flying Emus, winner of Best Instrumental at the 1987 Australian Country Music Awards. Because listeners who have been with us a while, and thank you, may recall that circa July 2020 we learned that a pub in the Queensland hamlet of Yarraka had been compelled to formally disbar two emus, known locally as Kevin and Carol, who had been barging into the premises, knocking things over, getting in the way, making a mess, and snatching toast from the toaster. 
We were, at the time, unable to rise above a tawdry joke about how it wouldn't have been the first time that a pub in Queensland had been obliged to eject malodorous and unruly patrons, but what are we going to do? It was right there. Anyway, we learned subsequent to their banishment that Kevin and Carol had taken the hint and vanished into the fathomless outback. But we learned this week that Kevin and Carol are back. The pair have returned to Yarraka, along with evidence of what they have been up to in their absence, specifically a brood of four emu chicks. Emu chicks are extremely cute, up until the point that they grow into the infamously querulous, crotchety, toast-thieving creatures which spawned them. Anyway, not only is this a heartwarming tale in and of itself, it tees us up nicely to play out with some appropriately Christmas and large flightless bird-related music. Here is Chris... Rhea? Come on, like Rhea, another large flightless bird native to South America. This is an excellent joke and not, as you unlettered morons appear to believe, a bad one. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Andrew Muller. Uh, and, of course, Driving Home for Christmas. Chris Rear, one of the most famous Christmas songs. Are you driving home for Christmas? Uh, I fear that Great Western Railway may insist that I drive home for Christmas by not, be, <laughs> by not running. Well, I mean, that is the thing, this huge wave of strikes. And it's so difficult, isn't it, when people are just asking for uh, a rise with within the rate of inflation. Uh, it's hard not to be on the side of the strikers. Uh, but also jolly annoying. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, but in terms of going home for Christmas, home for you is just outside the wonderful book town of Hayon Wai. Uh, tell us more. Um, well, Hayon, Hayon Wai is this uh, town uh, founded really um, on the idea of a love of books, uh, having actually been a sheep drover's town, sheep droving town for most most of the preceding several hundred years, uh, and two magical things happened. A wild character called Richard Booth uh, turned it into the town of of, of bookshops, and uh, then a wild thing happened over thirty years ago, which was the founding of the Hay Festival, uh, which in my humble opinion, uh, is the finest festival in the world. I'll get in trouble with other people for saying that. (laughs) Uh, But the fact is that the world finds its way to Hay at least twice a year. And that twice a year is the Winter Festival, which has just happened, which you were at, and it was magical. Absolutely magical. And then, of course, the the Spring Festival that that happens in May and June. Now, the festival also happens across the world. It's got many, many outposts. (laughs) And the one person who really knows about that is uh, Christina Fuentes uh, Laroche, who is the International Director of Hay, and hopefully she's on the line right now. Christina. Hello, good morning. There yes, you are. are. <laughs> Hi, Christina. And of course, you know Alice, don't you? Yeah. Yes, I do. Lovely to you. Alice, uh, uh, Christina, it's been a huge year for cultural events. Many are returning to full scale for the first time since the pandemic. How have you found it? I mean, to be honest, we started in January with Hay Festival Cartagena de Indias in Colombia, and we decided to go ahead doing a face-to-face festival even if it was at the heist of Omicron. And it kind of worked. We, you know, all the authors, writers, and, um, you know, the, the audience, they follow all the strict regulations. And it was a joy to meet. 
But then since uh, September, we, we did the Hay Festival in Segovia, in Spain, in Mexico, and those were fully fledged um, in-person festivals, Wales as well, obviously, May, and, and it was a joy. I think it's a joy to to gather again, to, to be together again, to listen to authors together. There is like this communion of people laughing, you know, crying, feeling at the same time is unique. And the feelings you get are more lasting, I think, than, than just watching them online. So I think it has been amazing to go back to face-to-face, in-person festivals without forgetting all the lessons learned. We have learned to reach people digitally. It's a great outreach tool, especially in festivals outside the UK, our international festivals that happens in quite unequal societies. It's great to be able to reach the people that cannot join us uh, digitally. Mm. So it has been a very interesting year and... uh, and I think we all rejoice of the getting together to listen and to share stories. Now, you've just released some tantalising early bird events for next spring's festival in Wales. Tell us a few of those highlights. Yes, we have released more than ever the early birds, like 30 events for the for the festival that is taking place next year from the 26th of uh, May until the 4th of June. And I think we have got a lot for many people, like literature. Margaret Atwood is coming back to talk about her new short stories uh, book. And writers like Eleanor Catton or the, or the Welsh Fleur Duffit. Then we're going to have as well lots of uh, journalists, big names, talking about uh, the memoir like Jon Snow or Jeremy Bowen talking about the, the, the making of the modern Middle East, or Michael Parkinson, Gary Young. History as well will be um, an, an important chapter with um, Andrea Wolf, the amazing historian, now talking about the, the romantic revolution in Germany, Magnific- Magnificent Rebels, and, 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 and Spanish um, classicist Irene Vallejo, that comes with an amazing book called Papyrus, that tells us the story of the books from ancient times, like how the book, what what the book means to all of us. And it's an amazing book that has been um, a big bestseller in the Hispanic world that has just been translated, Irene Vallejo by Pyrus. Again, history, Peter Frankopan is coming back. And um, environmental, Isabella Tree, the book of uh, Wilding. And we're having Dua Lipa, the amazing musician, that she has got like um, a podcast, uh, you know, she's a big reader and she's going to do um, one of her podcast uh, interviews live uh, at Hay. We have as well um, got uh, music, the proclaimers. So, you know, it's a, it's a 30 events in the early birds uh, choice um, with a bit for everyone as well, children's events. So I really recommend people to log into the website and check all these um you know, all these um, offers that we have already released. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, that's for next spring. But in fact, you mentioned Colombia earlier. You're heading back to Cartagena in January. I have to say, that is my favourite festival in the whole world. What, <laughs> what do you have in store there? And how is it different to the UK edition? And why am I not on the lineup? <laughs> you know, uh, Georgina, it's going to be our 18th uh, edition. So, you know, we are, we are becoming... Um, on a, you know, like 18 a proper adult now. So 18 editions. I think you came, Georgina, like maybe five, six years ago. 
I think it's time for you to come in, in the next one. Eh? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and we are celebrating big. As, as I mentioned before, last year, you know, this year we managed to do quite a hybrid festival in the middle of the Omicron. But this year that everything is, uh, you know, back to kind of normal, we are, we are celebrating with five Nobel Prize winners from uh, Abdul Razak Gurna, the, you know, the Tanzanian Literature Prize win- Nobel Prize winner, to Oleksandra Madvichuk. She just received the Nobel Prize for Peace from uh, Ukraine. She, um, she's an amazing uh, woman that uh, runs the the Center of Civil Liberties that was awarded this year as, with the Nobel Prize. Maria Ressa, as well as a Philippine uh, journalist, that uh, very brave woman that won the Nobel Prize last year. Stiglitz, we're having amazing writers like Rachel Kask, Bernardine Evaristo, Deborah Levy, um, you know, lo- lo- lots of music, um, podcast journalists. Uh, you know, it's going to be a big celebration of ideas. And as well, we're going to discuss issues about uh, the fight for equalities, democracy, race. I mean, important issues to discuss in this uh, in this kind of festival. So uh, I cannot wait. Absolutely. Christina, thank you so much for coming on. And we'll be sure to check out uh, some of those highlights, both happening in Cartagena in January and, of course, in Hay, uh, Hay on Wye in Wales in May and June. Thanks very much to Christina Fuentes. Uh, still with me in the studio is Hay resident. Uh, Alice Sherwood, who, in fact, you you do a lot of work with Hay, don't you? Um, I do, uh, both with the festival and uh, the winter weekend was held in Hay Castle, uh, which was, again, as I said, as as bits of snow fell prettily around, um, it was all completely magical. Christina's amazing lineup. Uh, and an amazing venue. And in fact, if listeners are interested, we did a, a programme about Hay Castle and they That's can true. find that on, on our, in our archives, in the Meet the Writers archives. Um, I feel we need to talk about football just because everybody has been. And we of must. course, is it tonight? No, it's tomorrow, tomorrow night, night. Is, is the big one. Um, so the Athletic, which is not, I have to say, a publication that I am familiar with. Uh, I, <laughs> so I, I have to own up. Um, I don't really watch football from one major tournament to the next, but this is huge. I found myself in local pubs for the um, France-Morocco um, match, cheering on, in fact, Morocco, because although I'm half French, uh, there's a big Moroccan contingent near where I live. Um, so I I can't claim to be any kind of football expert. And that's actually quite good because I'm watching these matches sort of with a fresh eye. And one of the things that struck me, and apparently this is a trend, I, uh, is surely the players shouldn't be n- barreling into each other and knocking each other over quite so much. Yeah, isn't that rugby? Oh, exactly. It seems to stop every few minutes and then there's the VAR and then you can see perfectly well that this footballer hooked his leg around the other footballer and everybody's making a lot of noise. And then I came across this article and and the bare bones of which actually are across the, the web I now find, which is one of the things that makes Messi arguably the best footballer in the world is perhaps not surprisingly his physique. But very surprisingly to me, um, the good thing about his physique is that he has very short legs and a long body. Now, I I would have assumed that long legs mean you can run further and perhaps you can trip people up from further. No, no, no. Uh, Having short legs is very good. Um, 
because uh, partly it allows you to twist your hips very quickly in different directions, which, of course, fools the other person who's trying to get the ball from you. But mostly it's the low centre of gravity, which is a huge advantage because it said in terms it makes him very difficult to knock over. How extraordinary. And I thought, well, this was completely gripping because he did not look when I was watching him, and we'll watch him again tomorrow night, like my idea of the shape of a sporting hero, but he is very, very much so. That's just, yeah. Have, thank Who, you. Knew? Yeah. Who knew? Probably lots of football fans out there, but not me. Uh, Alice, we've just got time for one more, and it's really got to be about the tackiest Christmas present oh. in the world. Oh. Uh, or pay, maybe the best, I don't, I don't know, no. depending on where you stand. Tell us about Donald Trump's digital trading cards. Donald Trump, that class act. Uh, announced, made a a pre-announcement that he was going to make a big announcement the following day uh, and people thought it might be something to do with the the race for the Speaker of the House or something similar, but no, no, no. It was that he was dropping, selling a series of digital, that is to say NFT collector's cards, all naturally of Trump. And this is where it gets seriously tacky. Um, Trump as Superman, pulling open his shirt to review, oh. reveal the S. Trump as a sheriff. Trump as an astronaut. Uh, Trump as every little boy's idea of a hero. Um, all in just the cheesiest way possible. And you could buy these digital cards, these NFTs, for $99 each. Uh They sold out immediately. Uh, They were prefaced by an introduction, again on video, by Trump uh, describing himself uh, as the best president since Lincoln and Washington. Uh, And two things. One, he's made $4.5 million overnight. But the really interesting thing is this money is not going to the Republican Party or good causes uh, or even the Trump campaign. It's going straight to Trump. Quite, quite extraordinary. I mean, is there any doubt now that he, at some point, is going to have to face criminal charges? He's hoping. He's absolutely hoping. Uh, but meanwhile, he described these as the best Christmas present ever. Uh, and I have to say, I don't, I don't agree. No, no, I, I can see that. Oh, they're pretty, they're pretty uh, appalling. OK, Alice, just before we go, it's Christmas. Uh, what, what are you hoping for? Oh, you can't great. say world peace. What? What? No, I okay. can't say world peace. Oh gosh! You can say a book if you like. <laughs> I, you can, be... I can say a book. Well, the book. Gosh, I'm going. If he's listening, this is going to embarrass him. Uh, we have a little tradition in my house, in our house, that I buy a present for me, which I wrap and I give to my husband to give to me. And he says things like, "What am I giving you this year?" <laughs> um, and this year, what he's giving me is um, the golden mole. Oh. Which Catherine is Catherine Rundell's um, wonderful for grown-ups collection of animal stories, but uh, without being too pie at all, because they're wonderful and scholarly and witty. Uh, they are also all of endangered animals too, but it's also beautiful. I mean, it's got a sort of wonderful golden cover. It's very Christmassy. And of course, she also wrote Super Infinite, which has just won the, the Bailey Gifford Prize, and which I was judging. So. And it was just amazing. Yeah. It blew everything else out the water. You just made the right call there. Yeah, she um, she is 
extraordinary. Uh, and if you're looking for a book, really anything by Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> for children or adults, she writes for everyone. <laughs> um, Alice Sherwood, many, many thanks well, for thank coming you. on and um, good luck with the Christmas shopping and the struggle back to, to Wales. Uh, <laughs> it all goes well. Uh, Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend without me, however, because I will be in New York. But uh, there will be much more from me throughout today uh, and from me and the rest of the team for this show, goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm George Gina Godwin and it's been a delight to be with you.